and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host, and uh, I got a good show uh, for you today. It's, it's, you know, like so many other of the programs that I do, it isn't always great stuff to talk about. I mean, it's not the kind of feel-good shows. I don't do those. Um, uh, perhaps I should do a few more cultural uh, enlightenment kind of shows, but uh, there's just so much stuff in the news all the time. Look, this is our special month, right? This is National Native American Heritage Month. And it hasn't really kept us uh, you know, out of the news. Um, of course, lots of, lots of buzz over elections and that kind of stuff, stuff that, frankly, I don't have a whole lot to do with. But the Supreme Court this week heard a case relating to the Indian Child Welfare Act. So I've got to address what the law is, I got to address what the challenge is, um, and, and try to offer a perspective that I know you're not going to hear anywhere else. I know I say it all the time. It's part of one of the reasons that I, uh, you know, I'm so grateful to be uh, carried by WPFW in Washington, especially when stuff like this is going on. Um, to be a part of that Washington, D.C. market when so much of our lives hang in the balance uh, as it relates to some of the activities that happen in those halls of power down there. Um, you know, I don't know that my voice echoes uh, through those halls and, and falls on the ears of, uh, of, you know, Supreme Court justices or lawmakers or anybody else. But I think the public uh, has a right to know and has a right to hear a perspective that they're not going to hear anywhere else. So, again, um, I'm grateful to be carried by WPFW Jazz and Justice Radio. I encourage people to support the station. Uh, and if you support the station while I'm on the air, it essentially supports, uh, supports me. So, uh, or supports my, uh, my time slot, put it that way. Uh, so I encourage you to go to the pledge lines. Go to 202-588-9739. That's 202 202- Five eight eight nine seven three nine, or go online to wpfwdc.org slash donate. Make a contribution of any size, whatever you can do, whether it's a lump sum donation, something, uh, you know, sizable and, uh, and significant, or whether it's something modest. Or if you need to do a time donation, something that you, you do on a monthly basis, you know, something very modest, like 5 or 10 or $15 a month, uh, something perhaps, you know, kind of equivalent to your Netflix subscription or, or, or whatever subscription service you might have. Uh, we're not going to shut you off. You know, whether you subscribe in this manner and become a member of the, uh, of the station or not, we're still going to be here. Uh, but it's the right thing to do. It's something that you can do to support a, a station that is, you know, not just primarily, almost exclusively listener-supported radio. So, Again, I encourage you to go to the pledge lines, go to the website, and make a donation to support WPFW Jazz and Justice Radio. 
All right, ICWA, and that's what it's called, the Indian Child Welfare Act. I guess to, to really talk about what ICWA is, we got to understand why it is. And, you know, I've talked about residential schools. I haven't talked a whole lot about how residential schools, um, the idea of stripping away Native kids and sending them to these, these church-run, government-funded um, boarding schools, which were much more like prisons than schools, how that overlapped and dovetailed with the, the foster care programs in the United States and the, the adoption systems in the, in the individual states and the, and the, um, in the United States. But it does. And in fact, arguably, even as residential schools were being eliminated, the foster care system came in to replace this whole idea of taking children out of our households, placing them in, in state-run facilities, or, uh, or frankly, you know, putting them into the foster care system to where white, white families were. were and, and, and let's be honest here. The system was abused. Much of the foster care system was not about serving the best interest of a child. It became a racket. I mean, there were, there were households that were being foster parents for, you know, for you know, five, six, eight, ten children. And it was profitable because there was money that came from them. They, they, got, they got funded from the state. And I don't know if there was any federal funding involved. Perhaps there was. But they, they, got, they were getting funded to care for these children. And oftentimes these children were abused in foster care just the way they were abused in these residential schools. So along comes ICWA. Now, ICWA's intent, as it, as it was spelled out in the law, was to put an end to that. It was, it was both supposed to be the final nail in the residential school era, which it wasn't, but it was supposed to be. But it was also supposed to address the abuse that states were um, inflicting upon Native families, Native children, and, of course, against our nations, our peoples. And that abuse came in the form of not just seizing kids out of households, and we'll talk about the reasons for those, for those um, uh, removals uh, in, in a moment here. But so the states were, were taking children out of Native households and then oftentimes getting caught into a whole other corrupt system of placing those children into white homes. Oftentimes, if it, if it weren't these white homes that were, um, were using the foster care system as a means for income, it may also have been wealthy, affluent white folks that for some reason have this obsession or had this obsession, no, I guess Ricard that again, have this obsession of having little native kids that, that they can save and scoop off the street, you know, take off the reservation or whatever else. But let, let me, I guess, let me do two things. You know, it's, it's tough because there's a lot to talk about here. One of the things I got to do is explain the climate that existed on native territories, the social and economic climate that exists on native territories through most of the residential school era. Abject poverty. I mean, and it was policy-driven poverty. It was poverty that was created by what the federal government called the reservation systems, but what we called oftentimes the, our last bit of property to hang on to, our, our, these communities. And of course, some of these communities are, were odd in that our people through the removal period were, were shipped 
to these places or forced to march in these uh, uh, to these territories. It's it is not um, uh, again. Most of us aren't living in our own ancestral lands, and I say most of us. I, 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 that's not may not be a proper characteristic, but many aren't. I mean. The Navajo and the Hopi and, you know, us Haudenosaunee are, are, some of us are living in our ancestral lands, but some have moved in, you know, farther into Canada. Uh, you know, I, I talk about Six Nations territories. Those uh, in Ontario were also being inf were infringing on other Native territories. The Oneida territory is, you know, is really in Chippewa territory. So it's, we were displaced. Um... But these territories that are now called reservations, in some cases, it's lands that we reserved for ourselves. But some, it was the federal government taking property from other native territories and shipping more native people to them. And then creating the policies that would almost make our lives unlivable on those territories. First off, you, you shrink the land so they're, they're no longer able to sustain the lives that we lived for thousands of years. That... And I'm not saying it required that we have vast acreages of land, but our lifestyles, the way we sustain ourselves, was was essentially living with all of that space. So whether, you know, again, people call us the hunter-gatherers, while we were also involved in agriculture. But our lives were changed forever. And oftentimes we were set to, you know, sent to places that could not be farmed and tilled properly. Uh, you know, the, the buffalo were slaughtered in mass so, so as to starve out many native territories that lived that plains, um, you know, buffalo culture. So there were any number of things that the United States did to make our lives miserable, including killing us, removing us from our homelands, uh, reducing our land holdings and our autonomy through the process of residential schools and other, uh, other policies. The introduction of alcohol. Yeah, I mean, part of the requisitioning of supplies for treaty making also involved getting whiskey and gin and rum, turning many of our territories into, into bastions of alcoholism. So the fact that we have poverty and substance abuse on our territories is not an accident. And it isn't some sort of predisposition that Native people have in our genetics that says, okay, we have to be, you know, poor and, and, and drunks. No, that's, this was a policy. It's all policy driven. You know, we, we know that, that, that policy creates ghettos in the urban environment. We know that the idea of uh, ignoring any kind of investments in certain parts of, uh, of cities and inner cities creates that poverty. Well, the same thing happens in the rural communities. I mean, rural communities almost by design are more uh, impoverished than urban societies anyway. But when you take them and, and place a, a people in some of the most remote areas of that rural landscape and some of the least productive areas, then you're, you're, then you're creating you know, poverty. So there's a, you know, what happens is you not only have a place that it's tough to raise a family, you also introduce the kind of 
substances. You know, look, we don't cr pr produce the uh, the drugs on our territories either. But the, you, you make sure there's a steady supply of alcohol and drugs that come onto our territories. Cops looking the other way. And, yeah, you create situations where, yeah, there are unfit of uh, parents. There are families that are not good environments for children. To, uh, but you created those environments. Now, the other thing you did is you adopted a, a policy to say, okay, yeah, these reservations that we allowed, that we allowed, are not working. They're failures. We need to get the Native people off these territories. So then you adopt policies like the relocation programs you know, through the Nixon administration, the 70s and, and such, which took Native people off of our territories. You know, By some estimates, and I don't know how accurate they are, 70% of the Native population, and when I say Native population, I mean people who are part of, of, of a nation, a, a, a First Nation. I don't mean just somebody whose grandmother was a Cherokee princess or somebody who's got family lore that suggests that they're not. I mean, I didn't mean Native people. But 70% of us don't live on Native territories. I had the benefit of living in a Native territory. I don't live in a Mohawk territory, but I live in a Seneca territory. We're, we're all kind of related. But 70% but of the Native population, as it's measured in the United States, lives off territory. So... If 70% of our population are not living on a native territory, it also means that they're not living under native governance. They're not living in the community. I'm not saying that all those ties are severed, but many of them get severed. So when ICWA came along, the whole idea was to, again, put an end to the forced grabbing of children for residential schools, but it also created guardrails that the states who were involved in the removal of children that they would have to follow because of a federal law, because Congress passed this, this law. Because it was states, other than the national policy of taking children and putting them in residential schools, as that turned into more of a state responsibility, it's, it's what remains as a state responsibility. States are the ones who run child protective services. And they obviously weren't rushing out to, to save our children from residential schools. No children were removed from residential schools by any state CPS service. No, they were, they were left there. But as the residential schools became uh, less and less, state agencies took over where residential schools left off. States were removing children from native households because of unfit parents, as, as they saw it, because of poverty, as they saw it, because of an unhealthy atmosphere for a child to be raised in, as they saw it. And then they would place them in places that they deemed that were more fitting for Native children. So ICWA said, no, if you're going to remove a child from, from an unfit parent, you have to prioritize a Native family member or somebody else within that nation, or in the last you know, uh, case scenario, another native territory. So perhaps you know, a Mohawk would be you know, sent off to not just Seneca, maybe even farther out west to the Lakota or to, uh, to the Navajo, or vice versa. Congress passed ICWA to correct what they had been doing wrong for so many years. 
for almost, you know, 150 years by that time. But the law was significantly flawed because just like all of the other efforts to, to assimilate us and to strip away our national characters, our cultural identity, ICWA still refused to recognize our sovereignty, our autonomy and our distinction. Now, granted, I'm not saying that there was no good that came from ICWA. ICWA did stop some of the abuses of the states. And it did stop, you know, or put a final nail in most of the, um, of the residential schools. But it still left our children vulnerable to state seizures. And ICWA would also, will ultimately be enforced by those state CPS systems, those, the state courts. So ICWA would say to the states, okay, you seize the child from an un, unfit home. Now you need to make sure that you can find a, um, an adequate native home for that child to be in, whether it's a family member, somebody else in the nation, or another territory. And only in rare circumstances should a child be allowed to be ripped from their home and sent off to be raised by white people. That's what ICWA was supposed to solve. It didn't. But because it doesn't address our rights and our authority to have custody and to maintain custody of our own children, not only as parents, but as communities and as nations, because it fails to recognize our sovereignty, it's a weak law. And today it's being challenged. That's what was being heard at the Supreme Court. And, and part of the argument that, that the, the plaintiffs are, are putting forth is that, first off, it's racist because it's, you know, it's somehow racist against white families. It, it is giving a, a preference to Native families to have Native children. Oh, what a, what a terrible thing that is. So they're saying that, that white people are being discriminated against as hosts for these children, but they're also saying Native children are being deprived of the benefits of being raised by white people. <laughs> so they're saying that Native children are being deprived and are being uh, you know, um, discriminated against and that white people are being discriminated against. So part of their, the, the challenge is discrimination. But the other part of the challenge is the claim that the federal government was overreaching by taking away a state right. Or, if not taking it away, dictating how the states had to implement their, their rules relating to Native people. And of course, since it's a different set of rules for Native kids as it is for everybody else, they could even ter uh, turn that state state's rights issue into a discrimination case. And that's what they've done. And of course, it gets more complicated because many of these children aren't being ripped away from Native communities. They're being taken out of, uh, out of a, a, a home, whether it's a single parent or whether it's you know, a set of unfit parents. But it might be far, far away from their ancestral you know, or, the, or the, the nation that they are somehow connected to, the parents, that is. It's Texas that's raising this issue, and it's over Navajo children. Now, Navajos don't have a territory in Texas. What it's about is, is a woman who lived in the Dallas area, from what I understood, 
who was of Navajo descent, and I don't know if she was an actual quote-unquote tribal member or not, but she was Navajo, and with a drug problem. Ooh, what a surprise. And the state took her child away. And then a white family with some obsession to, ha- to, to gather up Native children. I don't, know, I don't know what it is about white people and why they want our kids. I mean, there are plenty of white kids in the system. And you know what? There's black kids, too. You know, so I don't know why, how we, we get to win the prize. But anyway, so his white family wants, wants this child. And so the, the, the state places this child in the, uh, in, in the custody of, of, of a white family, an affluent white evangelical family, not unlike the residential schools. And, and, and look, and I'm not saying they were abusive to the children. I'm not saying that. But they certainly were not going to uh, heap them with Native culture, put it that way. And this became part of the fight. But it doesn't really become the fight until the same woman has another child. So it would be the half-brother, I guess, of the, of the first child. Um, and the state takes her, this child as well. And this family says, well, we want that child too. Now it's gained the attention of the Navajo Nation, and they're saying, no, we, we have a say here. And the problem is, ICWA doesn't really give us a say. It doesn't really involve our nations in the process, and certainly not our nation courts. The fact that, that we are involved in the process is, is the fact that we have a, a federal law, essentially, that says we should have a say. Now, many states have deferred to, to native courts to deal with child custody issues. I'm, I live here in Seneca Territory. I've used the Seneca Nation court system in custody issues relating to, to my own grandchildren. Not in any, anything you know, terribly divisive, but just so I could have a grandchild living with me and enrolled in, in, in the school nearby. So I used the Seneca Nation courts for that. And the states recognize that. The school districts recognize that. But the federal system never said, these children are a distinct autonomous, of a, of, of, a, of, a, of a distinct and autonomous people. And the sovereignty of these nations has to take precedence over the federal government or the, the, the state government as it relates to, to child custody. No, they didn't do that in ICWA. So that's why there's such a can of worms opened up here. But it's, it's just another classic example of a bad law being passed to, uh, to deal with previous bad laws. And even though ICWA had some positive benefit to it, it ultimately still leaves us out of the, the chain of command as it relates to child custody. I'm not saying we're not referred to and we're not, in some cases, deferred to, but it isn't necessarily deferred to in, uh, by the law, ICWA, Indian Child Welfare, Welfare Act, or our states that are unwilling to recognize our authority over our own children, like Texas. It creates a, this... This, you know, this terrible environment. And even though it's a bad law, if it's overturned, that could be very problematic for us. Because the grounds for overturning it may lie in the ability of the courts to go with the argument by the plaintiffs 
that we are merely a race within the American system. We're all Americans, and we are merely one of the racial designations of, of American citizenry. Which, as you know, I've talked about at some length, therein lies part of the problem. You know, we have Native people talk about decolonization. We have Native people talk about sovereignty. We have nations talk about sovereignty. But I heard one of the Cherokee uh, principal, I don't know, leadership, say that the ICWA was the gold standard for federal Indian law. No, it isn't. The gold standard would be the federal government, government coming out and saying, we recognize the, the, the autonomy and distinction of Native people. Instead of doing something flowery that makes it sound like, oh, yeah, we love your culture. And we respect you. If you respected our culture, you would respect our autonomy, which is something that you have worked diligently at for 200 years to destroy, including what essentially ends up being, I, I keep saying 100 years, then I said 150 years, but it's actually 200 years of residential schools because those schools didn't all close down in 1978 when ICWA was passed. Many of them stayed in existence because after four or five generations of Native people being ripped away to these homes, these schools, and, and they were homes, residential schools, Native parents still thought that that's what they had to do with their kids. So our, our the kids didn't have to be ripped away from our homes. Parents were, especially parents that were either unfit or so impoverished that they didn't think they could afford to, to raise their own children. They'd place, Native parents were placing kids in these residential schools. They were still horrific. And because these residential schools had this unholy relationship with, with CPS and foster care, it was still, for many years after ICWA was passed, serving as a means to, you know, to, to have, see to it that children never returned to Native communities, never returned to Native parents, never returned to their nations. By and large, it was a positive change. But it was never done properly. And that's why, why it remains at such risk. See, this is the failure of addressing the sins and the wrongs, the crimes committed against Native people. I mean, how do you address the crime of genocide? I mean, we saw in Canada how they dealt with truth and reconciliation as it relates to their residential schools. Oh, they put a commission together. They listed a whole bunch of, you know, calls to action, most of which Canada ignored. But they wrote some checks. And, and I'm not saying writing checks is a, is a terrible thing. But if it's the only thing you do is try to compensate the, the victims or survivors of residential schools with money, but you don't address the land loss, you don't address the autonomy loss, you don't address the sovereignty loss, that's why I, I, I've said it many times on this program. Truth and reconciliation is, is a false promise. There can't be reconciliation. Reconciliation suggests that we once had a great relationship that went bad, and now we're going to return to that good relationship. No, we never had a good relationship. You were killing our people. You were murdering our people. You were raping our women. You were enslaving our people. Then 
you sought to destroy us by taking our children for over 150 years. So what are we going to reconcile back to? I mean, I, cause I, I damn sure know you're not talking about um, leaving to, to where we, we reconcile by returning back to the only state of, um, uh, of success and, and, and thriving lives or you know, quality of life, which is what we had before you all showed up. I know that's not what you're talking about. But that's why I say reconciliation isn't going to happen. We need restoration. You can't bring the lives back that were lost. And you really can't undo the damage that was done to five generations of Native people who were subjected to these schools and to this genocide. Many of whom were not only abused, if not killed, but abused sexually, psychologically, physically. Many, many girls, that's where part of the sterilization program started. They would continue afterwards, after residential schools were shut down through Indian Health Services. But this is what you did. And your answer is ICWA? You're going to put some guardrails up for the states to follow? Was it an improvement? Yes. But not because you did the right thing. You've never, again, this is the truth part, right? You never owned the crime committed against our people. Never. And you're still not. As you sit in front of this judge, you're predominantly white people, white Christians, arguing whether ICWA is the proper way for the United States to fulfill its trust responsibility to Native people. And you never address the fact that you've never had a legal claim to claim us as yours. Oh, yeah, you passed laws that we weren't a part of. I go back to the phrase I, I started using a couple of shows ago. Anything you do about us without us is not for us. Anything you do about us without us is not for us. Indian Civilization Act? That wasn't for us. That was for you. The, the Indian Citizenship Act? That wasn't for us. You didn't need our population to, to somehow bolster your population. This is so you could undo some of the mess that you created with poverty and, and, your, and your lack of understanding. Of, okay, well, wait a minute, we were supposed to educate these people? That was the deal? We were supposed to provide medical care? We thought we were farming out that off to the state. And then, and then along comes the, the Indian or Citizenship Act. This is, well, if we make them all citizens, then we don't have to have this debate over who's responsible for, to these people. That's what the Indian Citizenship Act was about. It was about trying to somehow clear up any lack of jurisdiction issues or lack of responsibility issues. Just make them all Americans. That's what the policy was geared towards. So just make them all Americans. The problem is it didn't. Ten years later, when you passed the Indian Reorganization Act, you knew you knew that we hadn't all become U.S. citizens or that your authority to, to declare that we were all citizens was even legal. So you tried to reorganize and redefine. You, you actually created a definition of Native people, defined us as subordinate to the laws of the United States. 
You had no basis for doing it ever, and including this time. And the crazy part is, even this law of 1934, you go back and say, well, we can't do any kind of fee-to-trust land transfer to any tribe that was not under our jurisdiction in 1934. Well, I thought, thought that you just defined us as under your jurisdiction. See, it, it ends up being a complete mess because of the failure. I mean, there, there's hints at it. I mean, when they passed the 14th Amendment, that was geared towards black people, the formerly enslaved black people. They knew it wasn't about us. We were being included in this, this broad sweeping addition of US citizenship. No, because it says all people born within the, the boundaries of the United States under US jurisdiction are hereby declared you know, to be citizens. Yeah, but you knew that didn't include us. That's why you'd have, in 1924, you would try to change that. And, it's, and 10 years later, you would try to address it again. And again, and again, and again. And so here we, are, here we sit now where the assumption is that we're all US citizens. And not just US citizens, but that we aren't citizens of our own respective nations. That's the, the issue. It'd be different if you're saying, well, we're going to grant you the protections of, uh, of U.S. citizenship. Yeah, but you're trying to erase any protections that we would have under our own identities. That's what's at play here. I mean, this idea of dual citizenship. Oh, yeah, I'm a French citizen and I'm an American citizen. or I'm, I'm a Canadian and I'm an American. I mean, we've been duped into believing, oh, you know, we're still going to respect that you're that you're Mohawk or you're Navajo or Diné or, you know, or Lakota, uh, but, you're, but you're Americans too. No, as far as you're concerned, we're Americans of native descent. That's the way we are being regarded. And that's where the problem lies. And you know what? Our so-called leadership won't draw that distinction either. Frankly, native leadership should be telling native people, no, don't vote in those elections. We, you have your own elections. You have your own process here on native territory. And even if you live off territory, you still can participate in, in our, our, our governmental process. Now, we can't afford you some of the, the things that you know, urban life is going to provide you. Yes, and we're not telling you if you live off territory that you can't vote. In fact, we're not telling you if you live on territory that you can't vote, even though even though to vote in a U.S. election, you've got to sign away. You've got to say where you live is part of the state because they're the ones that manage elections. And that's where it's problematic. See, we don't play, we won't draw a line. We talk a lot about decolonization, but we're still somewhat apprehensive to un unravel ourselves from the system that has really been geared towards one thing eliminating us, either through death or assimilation. And to be clear, the idea, the idea of stripping away somebody's national or cultural character and supplanting it with that of a dominant culture is a, is a war crime. It was called denationalization. Before the word genocide was even invented, the international community was saying, 
Yeah, this is a problem. We've, we've, got to, we've got to determine, we've got to establish that stripping away somebody's identity, their national character, their cultural character, is a war crime. And they did. This is before the United Nations came into existence. And they even made that determination before the, the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. I mean, that's how, how Native people experience this unique form of racism. I talk about it all the time. But if you want to do an analysis on critical race theory, you got to look at what Native people have gone through in the legislative processes of the United States. I mean, it, it's criminal. It's... It's pros prosecutable, actually. I don't care. I mean, yeah, the United States did a lot of this stuff before some of this stuff was, was determined to be a war crime, but they continue, they're, they're continuing today. This battle at the Supreme Court over ICWA is still a continuation of taking our children away from us. Not just taking them away from us as parents, but as communities, as nations. And I don't know what the obsession is. Why do white people want our children? I mean, there's plenty of other children to grab up. And is there anybody who's going to argue with me that, that a black child who has been taken from a home because of any number of reasons, that that child should not be raised by black people? Are you really going to make that argument that that's, that that's somehow racist to say that? Or you're only going to say it as it relates to Native children. Because somehow Native children are what? We're more precious? And we deserve white people more than black people do? Really? Is that what you're going to say? But I'll tell you, if you reduce us to a race, part of the American United States mosaic of citizenry, now, we're not a race. We are a people. In fact, we are many peoples. The indigenous peoples of this hemisphere, whether we define ourselves as nations or not, and if we do, it's our definition of nationhood, not yours. See, this is the, this is the problem. We've got language issues, which you did everything in your power to destroy. And trust me, these children that the Brackeens are trying to grab up, they're not going to learn how to speak Navajo. I don't care how much money they have. That's not going to be a priority for them. No, they're going to overdose them with their Christian beliefs, which is another problem. I mean, the idea that, that, that this family and other families are, are placing some sort of racial preference to take our children, that's where the racism comes in. We are not the same as you. We never were the same as you. Our connections to the land, our connections to creation is different. You have adopted an entirely different view of the world, of, the, of your own existence. 
You have this belief in American exceptionalism. You, and you know what? Some of that belief bled over. I mean, I, I mean, when we talk about Native people enlisting in the armed, armed forces, part of it is our lack of, of, of opportunity. But some of it is buying into the, into the bullshit. Some of it is buying into all that nonsense. Yeah, I'm going to defend America because America's my land too. Well, I, I got to tell you, the United States has never been attacked by another, by another nation. And, and I'm including Pearl Harbor because it wasn't, one of the, one, it wasn't a U.S. territory. It was an illegal occupation. And it was that illegal occupation that was bombed by the Japanese, not the Hawaiian people. So why should we enlist to defend the United States when it was never attacked? And how is going to kill Vietnamese or Koreans or Japanese or Germans? And, and let's be clear, <laughs> the idea of people of color going to Europe to kill Europeans was still very problematic for white folks, including American white folks. There's story after story about how black soldiers were treated worse than prisoners of war from, your, uh, you know, from these conflicts in Europe. And we want to glorify native code talkers and not tell the truth about that either. Yeah, native people enlisted, but many native people were forced into, in, into en enlisting or facing the, the possible, possibility of going to jail. And, and it became advantageous if a Native person enlisted, or you could force them to enlist if they had language skills. Because they weren't trying to protect our language, they were trying to militarize our language. That's what code talking was all about. So, I mean, it, it's easy I mean, it, I take, let me take it back. It's hard to talk about ICWA without talking about residential schools. It's hard to talk about the Indian Child Welfare Act and not talk about everything else that leads to the passing of that law in the 70s. And why the passing of that law was still woefully inadequate. It's not just inadequate because it's being challenged. Part of its inadequacy is, is the fact that it may not withstand the challenge. And if you can get the Supreme Court to rule that we are just Americans with, a, with just another racial designation, if you can eliminate our distinction that much, then you can reduce it to what? Skin color? That's what their, their lawyers are arguing. They're saying, yeah, they're, they're just saying that our, we can't adopt these children because we're the wrong color. Really? You think that's what it is? That, well, that might be what the Supreme Court says. Because I don't even know if the liberal justices get it. The likelihood is Neil Gorsuch on the conservative side is probably going to fight this more than anybody else. I, I, I don't even know. But I guarantee this court is not going to sit there and say, we recognize the sovereignty of Native people.
No, they're going to say that there's some cultural benefits, perhaps, to a Native child being raised by Native people. But if you, if you break this down to an individual case, and you look at, at a specific parent who lost their parental rights to a child and say, what's best for that child? To be raised on a Native territory that has had decades and decades of policies making life tough there? Or are you going to say, that child's better off being raised by white people? Oh, who couldn't do that math? Who couldn't say an affluent white family with ties to the oil industry and evangelical right and that kind of stuff? That they can't provide better resources and education and, you know, any number of things, Nike sneakers, to a Native child. And isn't that better than going back to the reservation? So it is entirely possible that a bunch of white people in black robes are going to de determine what's best for our children. Because I guarantee that however the court rules, they're never going to say that we have the authority for the, for the placement of our children. Because ICWA didn't even do it. They said, no, you state agencies, you got to place them this way. We're going to create the federal guidelines. But... They never deferred to us, and they're still not deferring to us. What they plan to do is to reduce us to just American citizens with a native racial designation. So of all those forms where, the, where it puts race, where they, even, where they may include Native American or Alaska Native or just other who knows? You know, now we're being referred to by the media, at least in one media outlet, as, as indigenous creatures. I mean, further dehumanizing us. And I'm sorry. If you take offense to my rejection of American citizenship, then maybe you're not really paying attention to what a mess you've made of the place. I mean, you got Democrats praising the fact that they may only lose the House to the Republicans. I mean, the divisiveness in this country that runs along political lines, racial lines, social lines, is making it very, very difficult, you know, to continue to pitch this American exceptionalism, you know, campaign. The best thing that the United States could do from a Native perspective is just acknowledge us. Recognize our sovereignty. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that our territories are independently wealthy and that we're, you know, that we're declaring independent, you know, complete severability and independence from the United States. Look, the United States is funding Israel to the tune of billions of dollars a year. And there is a debt that is due, healthcare, education, whatever, however that's going to be. I guarantee the education we're receiving now is inadequate. And the healthcare we're receiving now is inadequate. That's why Native people died at a higher rate due uh, to COVID than anybody else in the country. 
So you're not fulfilling that promise that you made as lands were turned over, legally and illegally. You've never fulfilled the promise. Our people have suffered mal uh, malnourishment. They suffered through poverty. But most of all, they've suffered psychologically because of what you did to us, what you did to our lands, and what you did to our children. This isn't intergenerational trauma. It's trauma that continues. If you look on most native territories, we're living at or below the poverty line. It doesn't matter if we've got casinos. Hell, New York State squeezed $2 billion out of the Seneca Nation, a nation that could have used that money for a higher quality of life, one that they really don't have. That $2 billion seemed like nothing to the state. In fact, half a billion dollars the governor could turn around and give to a billionaire to build a football stadium. That's how meaningless it was in the overall scheme of life. But it was a big deal to us. It's a big deal to Seneca people. This is what we're still facing. And you know, and, and need I remind people that the governor of the state of New York, who was just elected as an incumbent, is a woman and a Democrat? So don't give me this whole idea that, uh, oh, yeah, we need more women leaders. Well, not if they're still racist. And Republicans don't have a monopoly on racism. But I'll tell you, I don't know what's going to happen out of this case that the Supreme Court's going to rule on. I mean, are they going to declare ICWA unconstitutional? And in the process... Are they going to make some sort of broader determination that anything that distinguishes us as Native people is somehow racist? That's the concern. And it's a legitimate concern because it can impact everything from health care to uh, land use, to our, our tax fights that we have with both the state and the federal governments, and gaming. I mean, that's what Donald Trump was arguing. And, and, that, and there are still states that are arguing that, that native gaming is racist because white people can't game, you know, do casino development the same way that, that native people can. And don't for a second believe that somehow passing the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was reparations. It's not. And in fact, passing that law was as racist as some of the other laws. Because just like with ICWA, it doesn't recognize our own sovereignty. It took federal authority over gaming and then shared it with the states forcing us to have relationships with the states that are oftentimes hostile relationships over gaming. That's how the state manages to squeeze $2 billion out of the Sinecas. And 
you know, significant amount of money out of the, out of the Oneidas and the Mohawks as well. It's all based on a racist law. After the Supreme Court recognized that we had the right to do gaming, federal government says, well, we're going to fix that. We're going to pass a law that says this is the only way gaming can be legal. Well, it was legal before your law. So why, how can it be illegal in the absence of your law or us not following it? See, that's what, that's what happens. That's the way we continue to be persecuted and oppressed. And I know that's not the way most people see it. But it's not just the way we see it. This is what we experience in our relationship with states and federal government still. So now we all sit and we wait to see if a bunch of white men in black robes, well, yeah, I know there's one black guy, but he's pretty white. Oh, I take it back. There's a black woman too, I'm sorry. I don't wanna, you know, in fact, I, 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 <laughs> I have more hope for her than some of the others. But I don't know. I don't know what the predisposition is on this stuff is. Because this court's mandate is to fulfill the U.S. Constitution, which is a racist document all by itself. Even with its amendments, even with 200 years of, of legislative adjustments, we are still victims of that process, of those documents, of those laws. I don't anticipate a great outcome out of this case. I see it as problematic. It's, it's problematic if the law remains as it exists, but it's probably more problematic if it's declared unconstitutional. Because that declaration by this court may open up huge gaping holes in our autonomy especially if it successfully reduces us down to just a racial category within U.S.'s citizenry. That's the problem. That's the way I see it. And the problem is far too many Native leaders won't address it this way. I mean, we have far too many people praising ICWA as this great, what did I say, the gold standard for federal Indian law. It's not. It's just another example of the government saying that they know better. They know what's best for us. They don't address their crimes committed against us. And that's the problem. We never get proper redress. We never get restored what is lost. We get placated with dollars or speeches or apologies, but we never get restoration of what's lost. Like I said, I don't know how this thing plays out, but until our sovereignty is recognized, until our, our autonomy and distinction is recognized, we're gonna continue to be subjugated and oppressed by the by the system. That's why decolonization is the only recourse for us. 
And that means unraveling us, removing those systems for, of oppression from our people, from our territories. It doesn't mean that we can't coexist. I'm not, I'm not opposing some system of coexistence. I mean, that's part of our culture, to coexist with creation, including white people. But we can't have you steering our canoe. We can't have you taking our children. Well, that's what I have to say about the, the current battle before the Supreme Court on our special month. I'll have more to say about it as more news breaks on the issue. Again, I want to uh, offer my appreciation to WPFW for letting me air this show uh, and for giving me airspace. I encourage you to support WPFW. I'll give the uh, pledge line one more time. It's WPFW Jazz and Justice Radio at 202-588-9739 or online at wpfwdc.org slash donate. Please support the station and let them know you enjoy the program. I am John Kane. And this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.